I use the word quickly, very, uh, very uh, wisely and intently because uh, somebody very dear to me said to make sure it don't take too long. Evidently, last week was a little bit lengthy. And, uh, but I, I want to just say I'm, I'm thankful for something. I, now, last week was a teaching lesson, and uh, we were discussing what the Bible has to say about water baptism in Jesus' name. And I'm so thankful we've received some calls this week people who are convinced by the word of God and they want to be baptized in Jesus' name. I, I, that's, that's the purpose. Teach The purpose of teaching is to help people find truth. And um, in the course of that last week, I made a statement, and uh, through the week this week, I, I wondered if that statement has troubled some folk. I made a statement that uh, the early church, the Old Testament or the New Testament church did not believe in a trinity. And I'm sure when I said that, and, and when I repeat it today, that there are probably people that are saying, look, let's just shut this thing off right now. This man is a heretic, and I don't want to hear anything he has to say. I beg of you to stay with me for a few minutes, because uh, if the sincerity of that question, you know, the honesty, I, I have no doubt of the honesty and sincerity of people because all of our lives, every place we've been, perhaps every church you've ever attended, that is the highlight of that church's teaching. That those churches that you've attended perhaps all your life has taught you that God is a trinity of persons. And you say, well, if everybody teaches, you know, if, if every church is teaching that, it's got to be the truth. Or if it's not the truth, how did they start to do this? And so hopefully in a few moments time, I'm, I'm going to underline that for myself. Hopefully in a few moments time, I can help answer something for you because I want to talk to us for a little bit about the origin of the Trinity doctrine. Where did it come from? I believe that I have some information that will help somebody. I'm just going to say that uh, the um, th there are things in the scripture that just make some statements or name some names and really don't give any explanation about it. An example would be in Ezekiel chapter 8. Here's an example. Let me, let me read a little bit. It says, uh, and, and it came to pass in the sixth year, Ezekiel is given his commentary. He's telling the experience that happened to him, a vision. Came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon me. Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins even downward fire, and from his loins even upward as the appearance of brightness, as the color of amber. And he put forth the form of a hand, and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven, and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoked the jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar this image of jealousy in the entry. 
He said, Furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. Remember, he's seeing this vision. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things, an abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Then said also, he said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. And he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, the, the very temple of the Lord, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here, for they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger, and lo, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore will I also deal in fury, my eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in my ear with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. One more quick example, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18. The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough, knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Now you'll notice several things that were mentioned that there's no explanation of in the Bible. Women are making cakes for the queen of heaven. Women are weeping for Tammuz. Men have their backs to the temple and are worshiping the sun. Now, there's no explanation as to who the queen of heaven is. There's no explanation as to who Tammuz is. There's no explanation as to why men would be worshiping the sun. Just going to say the Bible is not a history of the work of the devil, and it's not a history of mankind. The Bible is the story of creation and then sin and then God's unfolding plan of salvation. That's what the Bible story is. It's his story. It's history of God's works with mankind. 
So to understand these mysteries, we need to go, we need to take what the scripture has said to us is actually just some names and some hints, and we need to research further to complete the story. So I want to say that archaeologists, ancient history researchers, have given us answers to some of these questions. And so this particular study, when I, this study is how did the doctrine of the Trinity get started? What, what was the origin of it? It's going to take us back into the book of Genesis to the descendants of Noah. And very quickly, let me just point this out. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Now, verse 32 goes on to say, by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. The Bible tells a story in Genesis 11, the earth was one language, one speech. came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there and they said one to another, go to, let's make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime for mortar. And they said, let's build a city and a tower. And the top, let, let's build one big enough, the top will reach into heaven. And we're going to make a name because we don't want to be scattered. Now the Lord had told them to multiply and to cover the earth. But they built a tower and the Lord did scatter them verses 8 and 9 of chapter 11. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. They left off to build a city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So these three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the descendants of Ham, they're going to migrate to Africa, Arabia, the Ethiopians, Libyans, Phoenicians, Canaanites, Egyptians are going to come through this line. The descendants of Japheth uh, would migrate to Asia Minor and, and Europe, and so the Gauls, the Britons, Germans, Russians, Medes, Iberians, Greeks, Romans, Thracians, all those would come through uh, the lineage of Japheth. The descendants of Shem would settle in Assyria, and so the Persians, the Assyrians, Chaldeans, Armenians, uh, Israelites, all of these uh, Syrians uh, are going to come through the lineage of Shem. Now the mystery that's going to corrupt the civilization doctrinally, it's, it's going to begin with the builder of the Tower of Babel. Now remember, Ham was a son of Noah. Ham had a son named Cush. He had, he had uh, four sons. Cush, Mizram, Phut, and Canaan. But this is, we're going to follow Ham, Cush, and Cush had, uh, Cush begat Nimrod. So Noah, Ham, Cush, and Nimrod. Nimrod is the one that it was called a mighty hunter. Uh, here's what verse Nine says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse eight said he began to be a mighty one in the earth, or he became a leader. He he was uh, dominant in his uh, in in his appearance and in his uh, projection of himself. 
where it said he was a mighty hunter before the Lord didn't mean that he was always bowing before the Lord. It meant that he was in your face. I'm before you. It, he was he was a, a tyrant. This might the word when he said he was a mighty one. That was the the word that we get the word tyrant from. He was a tyrant and he was in the face of God. And Nimrod means rebel. So he was not a God-fearing man. He was a rebel that wanted to go against uh, the commandments of God. So in the beginning of his kingdom, Nimrod's kingdom, he built Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. Now, this, this man, Nimrod, who is against the Lord, who is uh, the voice, the heart of this project. Let's build us a tower, the Tower of Babel. Let's build us a tower. Uh, we, we're going to make a tower. Possibly, he's thinking, will the flood over, overwhelm this earth? Why don't we make us a tower tall enough that if there's another flood, we'll save ourselves? Possibly. At any rate, he said, we're, we're going to build a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. But, Nimrod married a, a woman who was as wicked as himself. His name was Samarimus, and uh, she was a rebel. And so together they started a religion. Now, Samarimus would claim that her husband Nimrod was God. In fact, he claimed that he was the sun god. He was, he was the god that would travel across the heavens and uh, light the day with his light. Now, Initiates into this religion had to take a, a an, an intoxicating drink. It was a mystery. It was a secret religion because the righteous sons of Noah, uh, Shem and Japheth, were still alive when Nimrod was alive. And uh, so this it was a secret religion, and it needed to be secret because not only was it trying to create another god beside the true god, uh, but it involved uh, sexual sin. Samarimus was very, uh, was very licentious herself, and um, and part of this initiation into this mystery religion involved uh, sexuality. And she herself was uh, uh, was an object, desirable object, and beautiful. And so this, they would drink a, they would drink an intoxicating drink. Their worship involved prostitution, and uh, and so. Sure enough, the word did get out, and the righteous sons of Noah, Shem and Japheth, learned about it, and they put Nimrod to death. Well, after they put Nimrod to death, Samarimus, his wife, had an illegitimate son, and uh, that's Tammuz. But what Samarimus said is, this is really my husband. You folk killed him, but you can't kill the son. battery uh, and so the uh, Tammuz Tammuz the son of Samarimus is um, in her words Nimrod uh, Nimrod uh, reborn again and, and so now you have Nimrod the father you have Tammuz the son now, let me read you from a historian, Alexander Hislop. At the death of Samarimus, her devotees said that she came back in the form of a dove. Here's what Hislop said. 
And when death had closed her career, while she was fabled to and changed into a pigeon, these gentlemen are helping me get a new battery in this. I want you to get this. Okay. Express the celestial deity of her nature, she was called by the name of the June or the Dove. The Assyrian Juno or the Virgin Venus was identified with the air. Why? But because in Chaldee, the same word which signifies the air signifies also the Holy Ghost. Thus, then, the deified queen was adored as the incarnation of of the Holy Ghost, the spirit of peace and love. So the original Trinity that was identified to be worshipped was the Father Nimrod, the Son Tammuz, and the Holy Ghost, Samarimus. I'm just going to say this religion passed from culture to culture over centuries. Thank you so much. And uh, it would take me longer than I intend to take today to say this, but as this, uh, as this religion passed from culture to culture, these names, Nimrod would, or Tammuz, and sometimes they came interchangeable. Sometimes Tammuz was called the husband of the mother, although uh, the um, ancient text don't really say that she married her son. It just says that she says uh, he was her husband reincarnated. But though they it would become Hadad for the Assyrians, Zeus for the Greeks, Jupiter for the Romans, Osiris, Mithra, Horus, Hercules, Bacchus, Adonis, and other names would be ascribed to the God who actually was Nimrod. Uh, he, in the, uh, as Bacchus, the, the songwriters of Greek of Greece represented Bacchus uh, when overcome by his enemies as taking refuge in the depth of the ocean. So the fish became uh, a symbol, and you, whenever you do that, that fish god, uh, he was known as Neptune, uh, Dagon, Janus, Baal, and, and we find we find some of this in Scripture. So that's Nimrod. All of those were names that were associated with Nimrod. Samarimus. Now, she would become Isis to Egypt, Aphrodite or Ceres to the Greeks, Venus or Fortuna to Rome, Virgil to the Druid, Shingmu to the Chinese, Ashtoreth to ancient Israel, Diana to the Ephesians, Indrana to India, Hertha to the Germans, Disa to the Scandinavians, Nana to the Sumerians, Ishtar to the Assyrians and others. Ishtar, Ishtar in fact, was identical with, with uh, Nina, the fish goddess of is a creature that gave her name to the Sumerian city of Nina and the Assyrians city of Nineveh. Now, you might have thought about this before. If in Nineveh, since it was named after the fish goddess, no wonder when Jonah was spit out of the mouth of the fish, 
at the edge of Nineveh, those people were overwhelmed because their very city is named after a fish god. So now this this religion, notice that um, Nimrod was going to build his Tower of Babel. It, it's in the um, ancient cradle of civilization. It's... Um, it's where the uh, eventually the city of Babylon itself, the massive city of Babylon, uh, is going to be there. And um, so the, the Sumerians build this city. It's Mesopotamia, which really means between the rivers. It's between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's in the, 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 the we call the cradle of civilization. So this culture, this culture, uh, they're, they're going to be there. Uh, they're going to be there. These uh, Sumerians are going to be there for like 3,000 B.C. to 2,000 B.C. Uh, there's a group of people that's going to sort of move in and merge the Akkadians. And, and after a period of time, the Akkadians take over and, and o- overcome. And they become the leaders. But here, I've, here's what the historians, uh, ancient history, and I, I looked this up and I read this. The, while the Sumerians disappeared from the human history around 2000 BC, the invaders that overthrew them adopted their, their culture and became more or less Sumerian. They adopted the government, economy, city, living, writing, laws, religion, and stories of the original peoples. So, what's happened is that every culture, now the Cadians, the Sumerians were there, like I said, 3,000 to 2,000 B.C., and uh, they adopted that religion that they found there in the, the, uh, uh, the Mesopotamian plains. And then the Amorites came in from like uh, 1900 to 1600 B.C., and then after them, the Hittites, the Amorites came. And here's, here's what the historian said. Although we know nothing of old Babylonian religion, they seem to have adopted whole cloth, the religion of the Sumerians. So they're continuing this worship of the Trinity for these hundreds of years. The Hittites came in 1600 to 1200 B.C. Now, nobody really uh, knows exactly where they came from, but they conquered this area and here's what the the historians said they adopted the laws religion and the literature of the old Babylonians thus continuing the long heritage of Sumerian culture they the things significant about the Hittites were that they were their empire was so large and they were a people of commerce and travel and so they traveled to all over the world, and they took their ideas, their philosophies, their re- they took their thoughts all over the world. And so uh, these, these, same, these same religious beliefs got into cultures all over the world, and those cultures, like I said, some of them renamed, they had their own names, some of them had some divergent uh, things. I, I was explaining to somebody some time ago, suppose... In your yard, you noticed a little sprout coming up, and it was growing uh, under an oak tree, a little acorn that had sprouted. And maybe there's a, just a stem and three little sprouts on that stem. That's pretty simple, but if you would wait about 40 years and come back, 
you'd see a, a great tree, but there would still be three main arms off of that tree. Hundreds and thousands of smaller branches branching off, but it would still be those same three original branches. And that's the way it is with this religion. Uh, in, in all of these cultures, you see the, the Assyrians would come in later, 1170 to 612 B.C. Chaldeans would be there, 612 to 539 B.C. The Persians would come in. And, uh, of course, during the time of the Persians, uh, Cyrus, the king, is the one who says to the... Uh, he says, I, I want you to go back and I want you to rebuild your temple to your God... And uh, you know, won't you, uh, he he believed that anybody that would offer something from their God to him, he could use it. Uh, but what had happened was that that history records that that religion, that religious belief in these trinity, in this trinity of gods, passed to all cultures. Now, here's the thing: prehistoric civilizations all seem originally to believe in the existence of a sole omnipotent deity who created all things. This belief was replaced with a trinity of gods who worked in unity. We have evidence that the Egyptians got their religion from the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, and from them to the Greeks. The religious system of the Phoenicians came from the same source. From ancient Babylon, the symbol of the trinity was the equilateral triangle. The Egyptians also used the triangle as a symbol of their triform divinity. In ancient Assyria, the Holy Trinity was pictured as a circle with the body of a dove going through the circle and three human heads on the dove. The pagans of Siberia illustrated their trinity as a human body with six arms and three heads. In India's most ancient cave temples, their deity is represented with three heads on one body. The name is translated one god three forms. In the, uh, the Babylonians uh, and, and the Egyptians and all of these, uh, there was uh, uh, Anu and Bel and, and E. Uh, Egyptians was uh, Osiris, Isis and Horus. I was, uh, in the Greeks, their trinity was Zeus, Athena and Apollo. The Hindus had Brahma, Siva and Vishnu. Trinities were not confined to those groups alone, but the Persians, Assyrians, Phoenicians, Scandinavians, the Druids, inhabitants of Siberia, the ancient Mexicans, the Peruvians, and many others all worship Trinitarian pagan deities. So this, this doctrine has been here a long time, but it did not start with worshipers of the true God. Now, Interesting thing, the Council of Nicaea was 325 A.D. Emperor Constantine was the high priest of this ancient religious order, the Babylonian Mysteries. He was keeper of the keys of Janus. Now, Constantine hoped to marry the religious division of, of his kingdom. 300 years of persecution. Let me just say that Constantine, some histories, uh, some historians write this, that uh, Constantine fought the Battle of Milan Bridge, and uh, he he must have really believed in God because he had the soldiers paint crosses on their shields, and believing that that's the reason that he won the battle because uh, he was uh, he was such a Christian he painted crosses, but Constantine was not a Christian. 
when he fought the Battle of Milan Bridge. And the cross was not a religious, it wasn't a Christian symbol. It was a religious symbol, but it wasn't a Christian symbol. Actually, it was the Chaldean Taw of Tammuz. It was the letter for Tammuz. It was worshipped hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Had nothing to do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so Constantine fought them out of Milan Bridge. But then he, he said, you know, we've been 300 years. We've been trying to kill all these Christians. It's causing big division. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a Christian. And uh, just let's just make it popular. So he claimed to be a Christian. But uh, he, he really didn't become a convert himself. After he claimed to be a Christian, he murdered his first wife, Manavira, and his son, Crispus. He murdered his second wife, Fausta, murdered Licinius, his sister's son, murdered Licinius, his sister's husband. He didn't get baptized until years later, just before his death. You know, just a safety measure. Punch my ticket here. So he called the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. His goal was to form a religious statement that would be acceptable to everybody. Christians, pagans. Like I say, Constantine understands he's, he's the keeper of the mysteries. He understands the trinity that the pagans have worshipped now for thousands of years. And so he, there, there's a young man at the Council of Nicaea. He's in his early 20s. His, his name is Athanasius. He will write a, a draft of something, and it'll be, of course, it'll be modified a few times through the years but it become known as the Athanasian Creed. And uh, today it's accepted as the, the doctrine of, of uh, many churches. But it was, it, it, he was explaining supposedly a Christian trinity of gods. Now at this council of Nicaea 325 AD, the, the Melchites avowed that the Holy Trinity consisted of the Father being Joseph, the Virgin Mary, and the Messiah, their son, Jesus. This same trinity was found in Ireland uh, until recent times. And it, this is from a, a published, uh, something that's published by uh, Reverend J. Furness, and he distributed these. And it's, uh, the title is Whatever Christian Must Know and Do. And he gave this quote. This is something that they would pray. Heart of Jesus, I adore thee. Heart of Mary, I implore thee. Heart of Joseph, pure and just. In these three hearts I put my trust. Now the Archbishop of Dublin published a manual uh, and he had this quote. In the morning before you get up, make the sign of the cross and say, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I give you my heart and soul. Each time you say this prayer, you get an indulgence of 100 days, which you can give to the souls in purgatory. Now, also in Sutherland, England, there was a card that was published by a priest of Sutherland entitled Paschal Duty, St. Mary's Church, Bishop Wearmouth. And it has this quote, Dear Christians, blessed be Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I give you my heart, my life, and my soul. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, assist me always and in my last agony. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, receive my last breath. Amen. So, since Samarius 
had become the Holy Ghost to her devotees, it was easy now to change her name to Mary. So it's easy to see how the new Christian trinity could be changed, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and be acceptable to the pagans, and still be acceptable to those who were claiming a Christian faith. So in establishing a a Christian doctrine of a trinity, the Council of Nicaea, it was really just repackaging this old original Babylonian mystery. And so the church system that emerged from that decision made it the Council of Nicaea became, you know, I'll say this for information, I'm not saying this to start a fight, but it became known as the Roman Catholic or Universal Church. World Book Encyclopedia, volume 16, page 7270 says this, but the doctrine of the three in one is considered to be a mystery for which there is not adequate explanation. The first authoritative statement of belief in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost was made by the earliest general council of churches held in Nicaea in 325, which also declared the Son to be of equal substance with the Father. I want to say something about Constantine. Uh, His title also was Pontifex Maximus, uh, which was Keeper of the Keys. And uh, that was another name for Janus. In 63 BC, Julius Caesar was officially recognized as, as Pontifex Maximus. This title was held by the Roman emperors until 376 AD when Emperor Gratian, for religious reason, Emperor Gratian wanted to be a Christian. And he refused to be Pontifex Maximus because he saw that such a title and office was idolatrous and blasphemous. He was not the keeper of the keys. By now, see the bishop of Rome, uh, when Constantine had the council of Nicaea, then he took friends and started placing his friends as pastors of churches. Those who were true believers were pushed out. They became the oppressed. They became the persecuted and the tormented. And Constantine put men who would follow his new doctrine into position. So by now, the Bishop of Rome had risen to political power and prestige. And um, in 378 A.D., Demasus, who was the Bishop of Rome, took on the title Pontifex Maximus, the High Priest of the Mysteries. That's the same title that the Pope carries today. He is Pontifex Maximus. I just want to say that. And I want to say also the Pope does not wear the mitre of the high priest of Israel, but he wears the mitre, the headpiece of Dagon, the fish god of the ancient pagans. Now, that church would become the dominant religious force. I'm just trying to give you some history. I'm not trying to offend anybody, uh, honest people, wherever you are. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to give you some history. One by one, the original doctrines of the New Testament church were abandoned or changed. The early church believed there was just one God and and that he was a spirit. They believed that he created the universe alone. They believed and taught that this invisible God made himself visible in a body of flesh. And he took that body of flesh to a cross to become the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. The early church taught that the plan of salvation was repentance water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. 
They also taught that being filled with the Holy Ghost would produce a life of inward and outward holiness. But these doctrines started to be changed. The doctrine of the Trinity was introduced. Water baptism in Jesus' name was replaced with water baptism in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Sprinkling for baptism replaced immersion. Infant baptism was introduced. The Holy Ghost was no longer an experience with a visible sign of speaking with tongues. The Pope became the vicar for Christ, or the substitute. Uh, they began to preach papal infallibility. Prayers were made to Mary. Confessions were made to priests instead of to God. The idea of purgatory was introduced. That's not a Bible idea. Indulgences were sold to take the place of repentance. Indulgences that you can get somebody that died lost. Oh, it's not too late. You can pay and get them out of punishment. The church became militant in its attempt to convert and control the whole world. Kings bowed to popes. Those who resisted were killed. Fox's Book of Martyrs records that the Catholic Church was responsible for the death of 68 million Christians. So since the ruling powers control the record of history, everybody who opposed the doctrine of the Catholic Church were labeled as heretics, and their doctrines were called heresies. I'm just going to say, if you own the band, you can make them play whatever music you want them to play. And if you own the the scribes who write the history books, you can tell them to write it or kill them. So the things that were the doctrines of the early church became heresies now. And those who claimed that they were still true became heretics. But I want to say that throughout history there has still always been true believers who have continued to practice the teaching of the New Testament church. I want you to understand that. All back through history, there are groups that prayed and spoke in tongues. The first permanent settlement, the first permanent English colony in North America was in Jamestown. The church in Jamestown had Acts 2.38 printed on its wall. That verse says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you, the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That was the doctrinal statement of that, the first church in the first permanent settlement, first permanent English settlement in North America. But you see, now, the, uh, there, about 1,200 years passed, and it's called the Dark Ages. And, um, as far as the bulk of the world, it was ruled by, by that church. But about 500 years ago, there was a new wave of revelation that started. It's an interesting thing. It sort of parallels what Joel was speaking in chapter 2 of Joel when he said, well, God has said, I will restore again the years that the locust, the palmer worm, the canker worm, the caterpillar have eaten, the, the metamorphosis of, of the locust. And... God said, I'm going to restore those things. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. He denounced the authority of the Pope. He preached justification by faith of the believer. And so the Lutheran church came out of his teaching. In 1536, John Calvin preached that communion was not the actual body and blood 
of Jesus, but was a memorial of the body and blood. It was a symbol. The Presbyterian church came from his teaching. In 1609, John Smith preached that water baptism should be for believers only and not for babies. He also preached that baptism was by immersion and not by pouring or sprinkling. The Baptist church came from his teachings. 1739, John Wesley taught that faith in Christ should produce inward and outward holiness. The Methodist church came from his teaching. I've read this, that uh, John and his brother Charles would preach uh, to coal miners. They would come out of the coal mines, their faces black uh, with coal dust, and and they would preach and, and fall in the ground weeping because this preacher said, you're going to have to be holy. You're going to have to clean sin out of your life. They would weep and tears would run through the coal dust. When the government wouldn't allow him a place to preach, he went to the cemetery and climbed up on the tombstone of his own family's tomb. And he said, you can't push me. And he preached from the tombstone. But that was holiness preaching by, by John and Charles Wesley, the start of the Methodist church. In 1809, Thomas Campbell and his son Alexander began uh, teaching that water baptism by immersion was for the remission of sin and not just a sign that the person was already washed from their sins and saved. You do it in order to obtain the remission of your sins. In 1901, Charles Parham started a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And uh, I read about this. It was... Uh, most of his students were people like retired missionaries who would come back home. They came to his Bible school and they would take a, a subject. They would ask a question. They'd take their Bibles and they would, uh, they would just study and search and come together and, and discuss it. And so Charles Parham said, hey, I have a question for you. In the Bible, people received the gift of the Holy Ghost and they spoke with other tongues. Did that ever stop? Is there anything in the Bible that says that it was supposed to stop? Or is it supposed to be for us today? So he sent them to their rooms and for three days they fasted and studied. And when they came together, they said, there's nothing in the scripture that says it was ever supposed to stop. The scripture says for the promises to you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So he said, we need to pray then that the Lord will give us this gift and on January the 1st, there was an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Understand that men were singing and suddenly they began to sing the same song in different languages, all of them singing in different languages. There was a lady who began to speak in fluent Chinese. She began to write in Chinese. She was not Chinese. The Holy Ghost poured out. It was, it was a revival that spread. It spread across and... and um, there were, uh, Brother Seymour uh, left and, and went to California, went to Los Angeles, went to talk to some of his, his uh, family members, a little house on the street. He walked in, was talking to them about the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost fell. People started speaking in tongues and, and strangers would walk down the sidewalk uh, and, and they would feel something so strong that they would just walk up and, and step inside and they would be filled with the Holy Ghost. So many people came that the floor fell through in that little, that little apartment. So they moved to a warehouse on Azusa Street. 
And the famous Azusa Street Revival that lasted for three years brought people from all over the world. Missionaries left their mission field and, and came home because as they were here and there's a great revival. And they came and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. The great uh, revival of the Holy Ghost. And this was, this was the Trinitarian Pentecostal movement. In 1914, people who had received the Holy Ghost began to study the New Testament. I'm going to tell you what the Bible said. Uh, when the Spirit of the Lord comes, when the Holy Ghost comes, it will lead and guide you into all truth. If you got the Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost is going to open your understanding to some things. You might have read past them in the Bible before, not understood. But when you get God's Spirit, it's a spirit of illumination. I've said before, uh, illumination, and we might use the word revelation, uh, but God don't have to reveal something brand new to us. This room doesn't have any windows or, or outside doors. If we turned all the lights, it would be dark in here. If somebody turned the lights on, I could see these pews. That, that light did not create these pews. It illuminated them. I got to see something that was here all the time. And the same thing is with the truth of, of God's Word. If you get the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost will lead and guide you into all truth. And so in 1914, men who had been studying, they said, why is it? That everything we're reading in the Bible, people are baptized in Jesus' name. There's no place in the Bible where anybody's baptized Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the more they studied, they agreed that's, that's the only way. I read of two men who'd been preaching a camp meeting. And uh, they had a lot of people to baptize. The next day, they sat up all night in their tent with a kerosene lamp. And they had a Bible on a little table. And they said, this is the only way in the Bible. So in the morning, they, they walked to the pond and everybody they baptized, they baptized in Jesus' name. Right. I'm just going to say that we are in this day. You see, as they started baptizing in Jesus' name, there came a greater revelation of the oneness of God. Uh, they, they began to understand that in Him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They started to understand, comprehend. I'm going to tell you, friends, that the message of the oneness of God and repentance and baptism in His name and being filled with His Spirit is the greatest message in all the world. It's the only message of salvation. I'm just going to say today, many millions around the globe are being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. They're being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. This New Testament church, folks, would you, would you get ready and help me here? I'm almost through. This restored understanding of God's Word helps us to know that the doctrine of the Trinity was not the teaching of the apostles. I say that I say that with tenderness in my heart. Because all the honest people who have believed this all their lives have only believed it because somebody they trusted taught them to believe it. The only reason a child believes in Santa Claus is because somebody told him or heard that Santa Claus was real. The only reason... The world believes in a trinity and believes that it's of God is because somebody's taught them that. But the Bible said if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall in the ditch. 
truth has got to stand because heaven and earth will pass away. But God's word is going to stand forever and forever and forever and forever. He said, I'm the only God and I'm jealous. There's no God beside me. There wasn't any God before me. There won't be any God after me. I'm the only God. I want all of your worship. I'm so glad that when I pray, I don't have to divide my prayer and send part of it one way and part of it another. I can just say, Jesus, you are my King of kings, my Lord of lords. You are the Ancient of days. You are the God of creation. I conclude with this. And I know that I read it last week, but New International Encyclopedia, Volume 22, page 476, the Trinity Doctrine, the Catholic Faith is this. We worship one God in Trinity, but there is one person of Father, another of Son, and another of Holy Ghost. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. The doctrine is not found in its fully developed form in the Scriptures. Modern theology does not seek to find it in the Old Testament. At the time of the Reformation, the Protestant church took over the doctrine of the Trinity without serious examination. I've asked them to sing probably my favorite song. We want to conclude with this song. The mighty God is Jesus. The Prince of Peace is He. The everlasting Father. The King eternally. The wonderful and wisdom by whom all things are made. The fullness of the Godhead in Jesus is displayed. It's all in Him. It's all.